0: Al-Jazeera Podcast.
1: Taking center stage today is Dr. John Esposito, Distinguished University Professor at Georgetown University. He's the founding director of the Al-Waleed Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding. He's also authored over 50 books on religion, Islam, and Islamophobia. Good to see you again
0: happy to be here you've been doing this for a while mm-hmm. 40 plus years actually probably 50 but we don't want to discuss that yeah, let's show not go yeah go ahead
1: you've dedicated your life's work to promoting the understanding of islam and muslims you're so passionate about it why why have you dedicated all of these years to this work
0: that was the question that i asked when i was in graduate school the director of the department said that uh i should take a course in islam and i said why um i was finishing a phd or i thought uh, supposed to be in catholic theology but then i became uh enamored by hinduism so then i was going to do a phd in hinduism and then he asked me three times to do it and i said uh why why would i do that and the reason was i knew nothing about islam and um uh, what i had seen was a movie called the exodus and the person that wrote it was a famous author and i thought he was a historian and based on that movie, I thought, why would I want to devote my career and take the course? What happened was I agreed to take one course. I was in a monastery for a number of years. Um, I wasn't ordaining the priest, but I spent between the ages of 14 and 24 uh, in the Capuchin Franciscans. I knew Judeo-Christian tradition, but suddenly I'm in a course and I, I, I'm suddenly faced with Islam, which was always in the U.S. Courses in Islam were put with Hinduism and Buddhism. So, you had Judeo Christian and then everything else Hinduism, Buddhism. Uh, and I suddenly realized wait a minute. This is a religion that recognizes the revelation and recognizes the prophets of the Old Testament, okay? And that recognizes the prophecy of Jesus, not the Son of God, but prophecy, uh, that venerates Mary and even has a whole chapter. So, that Mary actually appears much more in the Quran than she does in the New Testament. And, and, I, and I looked at the history and I thought, this at least we should say academically that we're looking at a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. And then from there, it just took off. I mean, there were, there were no jobs, so my colleagues were all right. My colleagues literally said to me, why are you going into that abracadabra field? Uh, and others said, you'll never get a job. And I was only hired to teach world religions. And I did not teach Islam until the Iranian revolution. I was going to say, so I owe my career and my first Lexus to Ayatollah Khomeini in the Iranian revolution. Yeah. But it's true. I, and I think that's the key where my passion came from was the key that whereas Muslims were in different parts of the world, they were just seen as Egyptians or Lebanese, not very visible in the U.S., very few mosques, etc., And yet there was an immediate equation that this is what their religion's like. That is the TV every day showing people shouting death to America. And you've also spoken about the turning
1: point in terms of Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. That that really also laid the foundation for really framing Islam and Muslims as a threat.
0: I think the significance is as follows. Some of you know the name Edward Said. Edward Said, right after the Iranian Revolution, and most people never saw this in a book that he had called Covering Islam, He talked about, in 1981, that there was something happening in America with regard to Islam. And he talked about it for a while, a negative aura feeling. And then he ended by saying, this isn't uh, what Islam is. This is the way it's being seen and portrayed. And this could lead to a clash of civilization. It wasn't until 1993 that Huntington published an article, Clash of Civilizations. Everyone attributes that. To Huntington, that he came up with that idea.
1: It's still pervasive today, isn't it? That that idea that really it's really a false dichotomy in a lot of ways. And you know, I was reading recently that really interesting cultural fact: every year, American students walk across their graduation stage wearing a graduation gown and a cap. And I was actually reading that roots itself in Muslim universities. In the ninth century where Europe's best and brightest would go to these universities and they would want to come back home and mimic the thobe, and the flat cap symbolized the Qur'an as the highest form of knowledge even the tassel would have been the bookmark in the Qur'an you know for keeping your place in the Qur'an I mean the fact that the Islamic intellectual tradition really influenced something as common as what American kids were, even in Europe, walking down their graduation stage, what does that say about Islam's impact on Western civilization and intellectual thought?
0: The, the model for universities in many ways were the, were the early universities in Islam. The notion of having hostels for students. As one prominent scholar of Islam said, during the Dark Ages, if you were up on another planet and you looked down, the West was invisible. It would have been the Islamic world that stood out. And the idea that during that period, you had a fluorescence in terms of the areas of philosophy, medicine, algebra, etc. And then that was carried over into the West. And yet some of that was lost. So for example, I studied Catholic theology in many venues. Very few people ever talked about the fact that Thomas Aquinas, who used to be seen as the great Catholic theologian and his teacher, were influenced by... What came the philosophical tradition that then was passed on back into the West. The same thing happens when you look at areas of medicine and science and technology, Uh, and a lot of that is just beginning, I think, at a popular level um, to to surface right now.
1: One of your colleagues at Georgetown actually told me once that even Thomas Jefferson was influenced by John Locke, who was influenced by the Muslim philosopher Ibn
0: Tufayl, so. Why don't we learn these things in school? It's changing now, but see, in, in the U.S., for example, it was typical in universities you did not have, unless they were a religious university, a religion department. Mm-hmm. Now you have them in different areas, but how do you get it into the schools, the high schools, et cetera? And now we have a, a program, and if you, if you go to our website, um, we have a, a woman who does these courses for high school teachers, you know, and we provide, we, we fund it, etc. Uh, and for other teachers so that they can go back into the classroom so that now when I have students coming in, unlike 1993, 95, 96, when I first went to Georgetown, many of my students have come across Islam and Islamic history uh, in their courses. Some of them have actually had a chance to study Arabic, but it's still not, you know, a, a major force.
1: What about in terms of the presence of Islam in America? and the impact particularly of black Muslims on American culture, Islam wasn't this thing that came about in the 1960s with immigration. I mean, it's as American as the origin story of America.
0: That, that part of American history is, um, is often invisible. Uh, when you, in general, the, the approach to talking about Muslims in America was always in terms of when did Muslims come from overseas to America, you know, uh, or, and also Arab Christians, etc. Um, the, the, set, the, the, the whole history in the past, for example, that many of the slaves that came were Muslim, even if over time, for many of them, they were not able to keep their faith and there was an attempt to kind of convert them. Much of that is, is forgotten so that it's only um, in recent years with, with the rise of the Nation of Islam, uh, with Muhammad Ali in terms of an example, that uh, there was more of a sense, and we still forget it, when people talk about Muslims in America and their issues, they forget that almost one-third of the population in America are African-American or, or Black. And they've had profound impact on, on culture in terms of even
1: something like blues music, hip-hop. You know, there's a lot of you know, Muslim undertones as well in terms of the culture. So I think it's important to remember that as well.
0: But I'm bad on hip-hop. <laughs> I don't relate to HIPAA. I've tried.
1: What about how geopolitics impacts the the spread of Islamophobia? You know, you saw the rise of Islamophobia in a lot of ways after 9/11, war on terror. It was really a top-down message, right? From the from the US government um really perpetuating this idea of the Islamic threat. But now we live in a different world where we just had China, you know, broker a deal between Saudi and Iran. As the U.S. you know has pulled out from Iraq, pulled out from Afghanistan, how has your outreach changed on the ground in terms of how you see things geopolitically?
0: Well, what you see that that really is depressing is that on the one hand things have gotten better in terms of uh, percentages of um, Americans and 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 in some other countries too, uh, but certainly in America, understanding Islam, but still a significant minority don't. I think that that the globalization of Islamophobia uh, has been missed uh, in the sense that, in fact, Islamophobia has grown in Europe, uh, in countries like Austria, uh, in the UK, in Germany, and it grows for countries where they don't have many Muslims. I mean, I've literally been to conferences or run a conference where somebody will get up and say, who's from Poland, for example, and will say, the good news is we don't have many Muslims. The bad news is we have Islamophobia. A prominent Australian professor said the same thing but now the globalization spills over you know into china no coverage of it the first major publication in america that dealt with islamophobia was in 2010 when you had the front cover of uh of time magazine saying is america islamophobic what i realized about eight years ago was that this wasn't going away things weren't getting better you know things things were getting getting worse
1: what about the u.s political environment So during the Trump years, you literally had the fringe of the Islamophobia cottage industry in the White House. You had Stephen Miller in the White House. What's the shift from Biden now? Because obviously the rhetoric has changed. But
0: what about the policies? Uh, When you look at the policies of the biden blinken administration, I mean, sadly, sad to say from my point of view, uh, there's no significant difference when it comes to their approach to the Middle East or, or to the Muslim world. There has been and, 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 you know, the, the naming of a, a senior person in government, Rashad Hussain. But basically, you do not see in their policies and the statements that are made. There, there's theft, right. no significant shift. Right.
1: You advised Biden, didn't you?
0: I advised him um, after 9 11 when he was uh, chair of the Farm Relations Committee. What you discovered with, with Biden, and it wasn't unusual, after 9 11, a number of uh, senators and well, former senators asked me to do some talks for senators and stuff, and what you discovered, it, and it was natural in those days. The Middle East was not taken seriously, you know, and so most senators or Congress people had somebody on their staff that handled the Middle East. So, and so that they would then just rely on that person who would then write a report for them. And so when I met with President Biden, he was open to wanting to understand this, but you could see that. Um, you know he's an expert on Europe, as he said, and particularly on France. And this wasn't part of what he was aware of or used to. John Kerry th- turned up at, at one of the briefings that I gave, and Kerry's a very brilliant guy. But but there was no sense of that, and all of that shifted significantly, really after nine eleven. But that set the stage for the problem that we had. You know, uh, President Bush made some. You know, went to went to a mosque and made. Very nice statement. On the other hand, we invaded Iraq and basically said, you know, it was to liberate and we occupy. I'm wondering, you
1: have studied Islam for years, you've taught it for years, you have books literally called How to Understand Islam and Muslims. I'm paraphrasing now. What's something that you still don't understand about Islam and Muslims?
0: I come from a Catholic background, I'm Italian American. My identity, if threatened, I respond to, okay? Many Muslims do, many don't, because they're just too busy. They don't take any interest, etc. And And yet they get concerned or upset what's happening around them. And so for me, it's really, you know, uh, the idea that at times frustration, why, why aren't there more people who are going out of their way, whether they're young or older? It's not that there aren't a lot of people who do this but there's a significant number that don't uh, and, and be involved in it.
1: I have to ask you, for years, there's been rumors swirling around about- We
0: should have never
1: humor. had breakfast
0: together. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And yeah. I'm wondering, right here, right now, yeah. in front of this live audience, is there something you want to share with us?
0: Yeah, this, this, I was telling her that, I'll, I'll explain it to you. I, I was invited to do uh, to a program in the UAE with some representatives of uh, the British government and, and Muslims, older, younger government types. It was a closed session off the record. We all know off the record is not off the record. And I had given a speech. I was tired. And the last panel, um, they asked me um, to give another speech. And I was the last speaker. And I decided I didn't want to do that. So what I did say is I looked into the audience's eyes and I said, I know there's a lot of questions about me in terms of my identity. The question is, the identity is that for many years, people have said that I'm going to come out of the closet at some point and say that I've been a Muslim all along. And and so my critics will often say, you know, if he writes like this. And so what I said is, I think I'm going to address the issue. I know that you'll keep it in this room. And so I look very serious and I looked down for a while. And I said, "Um, I do dye my hair. Okay. And after it, the younger Muslims came up and said they were sitting next to older Muslims that were going, mashallah, mashallah. I've had that. I I, I check into a hotel at Saudi Arabia. You're checking in and somebody comes up beaming. Or I go to Oxford and I give a lecture. And after it, somebody says to me, you know, there's a rumor coming out of Canada. I said, let me guess. So, yes. How did you feel about that rumor? I feel privileged that they say that. I mean, to to me, it says at at a certain level that it says that... um, That some people think that I understand Islam. You have street cred, and that you know, and that the that the people that don't like it, they're the ones that say, you know, when they say coming out of the closet, it's the people that want to say, you see, he always. That's why he writes this way. Yeah, that's that whole thing. One last
1: question on a serious note: as someone who has immersed himself into the study of religion, spirituality, we didn't get to really go too deep into your own background. But I'm wondering, what do you think happens after we die?
0: Well, I think that the people that I don't like go to hell, and I'm worried about people who who no longer believe in hell because I kind of want to say, you know, uh, what? <laughs> He's here, you know. Um, I after we die, I I, I mean, I I I don't <clears throat> I don't know. <clears throat> I'll probably find out a lot sooner than you will. Um, but I, I think that uh, I think there is an afterlife. Um, I really regret this. Uh, I'm the one that cried at my wedding. When you come out after a wedding in a church, it's you know the groom is there and then the bride is greeted. Well, my wife had to greet everybody because I get emotional. I think that there is an afterlife, and I think that people who lead a good life, whatever their faith or no faith. If they lead a good life and one sometime can discuss what does that really mean? I think that they will be at peace and you know, it, it'll be there. And if I get a chance, some night I'll appear to you in the middle of the night and say, hi, I'm calling from upstairs. And I just want to tell you, I was right. I was right. This episode was produced in partnership With the
1: Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia and civil society.